Hi, my name is Sarah Nizzi. I am a pollinator conservation specialist and NRCS partner biologist in Iowa, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from Axe and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Sobel. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to the Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. Okay, so I'm hoping for good news here because I actually haven't heard. Uh, did monarchs end up on the endangered list in uh, September? Wow, coming in hot immediately. <laughs> uh, the monarchs have not officially been listed in the Endangered Species Act. They are currently still... Uh, in a bit of a limbo as a candidate species. And we were hoping to have official word this December about their status, but I believe that has been pushed back another year. Wow. So TBD. Um, They're still, I mean, they basically go through an annual review process and need to evaluate, you know, different conservation practices, evaluate research. You know, the monarch is such a a big I know how do I want to say this it's a it's a beast I mean it's it's a species that has you know the eastern monarch population plus the western monarch population mm-hmm. two distinct populations that cover a lot of ground and they're a very generalist species so it's it's yeah. a lot yeah and, and it leads to a lot of potential problems right once they become protected because I mean just general land use practices you know if you're using insecticide for your crops well what if that is shown to kill this endangered species you know be a threat does nobody get to use that anymore or how how many of us have hit a monarch with our windshield going down yes. going down the road i you know, know it's, it's like, like the like, saddest thing ever i'm like come on man get a little taller and then just you and, hit you, him. and you might be listening in because oh come on you know you got to live your life okay hit a bald eagle with your windshield going down the road. Do you just like keep going or do you have to stop and be like, Hey, I hit a bald eagle. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Dude, and those were, aren't protect. Those aren't on the endangered list anymore, but you know, there were that some, back in the nineties. And you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's like a real consideration. It's challenging because there are so many different factors involved, but I will say that in terms of USDA, which being a partner biologist with the natural resource conservation service in Iowa, Um, they're going to be working really hard to be sure that people that have conservation reserve program land or what have you are protected. And that's not something that they need to shoulder necessarily. So there's, we'll see how it plays out. We don't, you know, I certainly don't know. We don't know a lot about it. Our at Xerces at the Xerces society for invertebrate conservation, which is where I work, we have staff on our endangered species team that works really closely with these subjects mm. and these so they like stakeholders in uh, DC or what are they doing for we yeah so we have lobbied for species at the state and federal level for protection and Xerxes did lobby to petition the monarch um, and we've you know lobbied to petition a number of species who do you 
because you don't just like go to a senator and be like, hey, this needs to like who's helping make the decisions on what goes on the endangered species list? That's a really good question. So we do actually work with a number of senators. Really? Yes. But it's not like because senators don't go in like experts on monarchs or conservation or bats or something like that. Like they're getting a voice from someone else, right? Correct. Someone they trust. So is it like hard to target who they actually like are trusting on that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it comes from both sides. We want to work with legislators that we feel comfortable with and vice versa surely but then you know at the end of the day it's really the u.s fish and wildlife service and the um yeah u.s fish and wildlife service that it's i don't know burden's the right word but they're basically in charge Hmm. of kind of what gets listed and what doesn't and they're listening to a bunch of stakeholders and you know it's it's a wild, it's a wild it's issue and a really a mar- interesting I mean, place to be a, in. Yeah, it's such a marathon process, it seems like. Is it hard to keep your eye on the ball for, I mean, literally years while you're working on this stuff? I mean... It is. It's a lot to keep track of. And that's kind of why us as an organization, thankfully, we have specific individuals within our team that that is kind of their job to do, is to track these things. And we have monarch biologists, especially for the Western population, which is really you know been hit hard um a few times in the last couple of years that you know day in and day out they're like monarchs i do monarchs yeah and we have one staff person who's pretty um monarch focused and keeps his toes in on all the research in the eastern population wow there's so much because you just think about like to most people monarch is a tiny you know, a tiny part of their life that they see every once in a while floating around a garden. They're like, oh, wow, really cool, a monarch butterfly. And then occasionally they see on Facebook, hey, monarchs are, we need to help the monarchs. And we're like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. That's like the extent that monarchs is to most people's lives. And there are some people in the United States, it is their whole life. They, that's what they are focusing on. That's what they do for work. And it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, it really is. And I think monarchs are easy to- for a lot of people to get behind, especially older people, because they have those intimate memories where they saw monarchs in really large like populations, like mm-hmm. lots of individuals in their lifespan, and then have seen them over time dwindle. I'm 34, and I don't really remember a time where like monarchs were really prolific or just you saw them everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've all seen them, but it's it's not that it's less than or that it doesn't matter it's just you know they have like a generational experience with this one species of butterfly Mm -hmm. and so they and it's you know i kind of joke that you have like the honeybee people that are you know obsessed with honeybees and that's their livelihood and everything and then you have the monarch folks and they're you know there's a lot of people are super jazzed about it but it's been a nice um kind of gateway into conservation and in, in insect conservation yeah that that part there about insect uh conservation i think i heard recently there was an example it might have just been in california where the state was wanting to designate i think it was a bee and they had to classify it as a fish because i, I love that you're bringing this up what? because there was no precedent for well how do you how do you you know, classify something as endangered. That's an invertebrate species, you know, like you're talking a whole different scale 
of amount of life, you know, then, you know, if you're talking about squirrels, well, that you can, you can have a pretty good idea how many squirrels are in the world. When you start talking about, you know, our bees fish and our fish bees. Yeah. Right. Right. And so they, to, in order to like fit this protection in, they had to reclassify the, uh, this bee. It was a bee, wasn't it? Yes. I didn't As go to a school fish. for this stuff, but I'm pretty sure that if I told the IRS that uh, I'm going to classify all my income as debt, that they would not fly with that. So how is this? How is this working? <clears throat> so again, I'm I'm just thrilled that you're bringing this up. Um, <laughs> this has been a hot topic, and there's some videos out there that people can YouTube that are hilarious. Um, so the Xerxes Society actually petitioned with the state of California to list four bumblebee species. Really? For is protection. this close to, this close yes. to home? Is with Xerxes? Okay, yeah. this is awesome. And with with um, another, with other groups. Sure. Um, but yes, so years and years ago, California legislation listed that you can protect plants, you can protect animals, you can protect things like fish. And in the legislation, fish are classified as, you know, fish, mollusks, invertebrates. That's right. And something else that I'm forgetting. And bumblebees are no doubt, and insects are invertebrates. Mm -hmm. So we were able to gain protection through the state and have them listed um, for state protection with this caveat that they did not see coming down the pipeline (laughs) so bees are not fish wow but you heard it here first in california law (laughs) they can be in order to be protected no (laughs) and that's kind of how it was pitched you know by a lot of people all them californians now they think bees are fish those people are so confused you know plug for the daily show go watch it it's hilarious (laughs) (laughs) but But no, it's 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 interesting when you talk about that with invertebrates because, and so that's my next question: Is there much precedence? I really don't know. For, you know, now we're talking on a federal level, Endangered Species Act. Is there precedence for listing invertebrate species on the endangered species list that they could look into to like give guidance? Okay, if we give monarchs this designation. These are the kind of things we're going to have to put in place that still allow people to live their lives, but achieves our conservation goal. Yes. So, I mean, there are other invertebrate species that are listed federally. Um, The Pleistocene snail, for example, Mm. that exists in northeast Iowa. You know, the rusty rusty patch bumblebee. The the regal fritillary is a candidate species also. Um, so there's other examples out there. It's just the the big the big difference. It's just the fact that a monarch can occupy a large space where many of these other species are. Um, they're more specialized. Well, like that snail, they thought it yes. was extinct, right? And then they found it like in some of those ice caves up in Driftless, Iowa. Yep, and exist in like algae talus slopes. Yes. Um, so many species are rare. They're specialist. They occupy really specific small spaces, and the monarch butterfly is essentially the opposite of that. 
Wow. So that's where it's that, going to be. I so, mean, that's. So the precedence answer is yes and no. Like there's yeah. other there's other invertebrates, but not on this scale. Yeah, I, I can't think. I mean, sure. Maybe the, the rusty patch. Yeah, I mean, there's other species that have had large historical ranges, but a lot of them are extirpated or, you know, no longer are existing in 90% of them mm-hmm. in terms of the rusty patch bumblebee, for example. Whereas the monarch, you know, that's still not the case. Yeah. So it's, um, again, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting. Definitely. And it is interesting in real time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Man. So <clears throat> we have this coming up yet again. You know, I, I think we really felt when we talked with uh, Wendy Caldwell from Monarch Joint Venture, which was back in March, late March, right? Yes. We really felt like, okay, this is, you know, any, it's any happening. time now, but we're back into that cycle. And, and I imagine that's probably part of it is it's going to be a big deal when it goes down. And I imagine it's going to almost feel surreal to all of you folks who've been working so hard on it for probably much of your career at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it takes up a lot of people's times. I mean, not just the Xerces Society, but lots of different, or, you know, Monarch Joint Venture, mm-hmm. um, Journey North, Monarch Watch. Um, it's How will all your roles shift then once that designation comes? Will, will you guys be able to be, I know you're in a little bit different situation because Xerxes is broader than just the Monarch Butterfly, but will you guys be able to say, great, now we can shift our focus over to this species or will it, will there have to be some sort of effort allocated and effort includes money, of course, to, okay, how do we make sure that now that they're on the, the, uh, ESA list, we are seeing progress. Well, do you think that'll happen for you guys or do you think you'll be able to kind of, you know, well, we're not going to switch gears. Yeah, yeah, we're not going to move on to the next thing. We're going to keep um, keep focused on it. Potentially, I mean, if it were to be listed, I mean, we could, I don't know. I don't have a say in what the future of the organization is. But, you know, maybe we'd hire Eastern Monarch people. Sure. Um, who knows? I don't know that. But we'll certainly keep working, keep fighting, keep um you know, putting good habitat on the ground, making sure that good research is still taking place so that we're doing best management practices and um, doing everything that we can to help, you know, keep the population as is and improve. And again, the Rusty Patch Bumblebee is a great example because, you know, that was listed in March of 2017 and we are still consistently trying to um, Mm. work to improve their habitat and their numbers and get community science people out looking for bumblebees and um, because there are like iowa is home to 14 documented bumblebee species five of which are at risk so it's it's you know the work doesn't really end yeah Yeah. Yeah. the boots on the ground part is mind-boggling to me just and and how they come up with the math to estimate whether they're out there or not that's that is crazy but because like insects people feel like oh just the bugs are everywhere but it's like there aren't that many bugs these days you know what i mean no no like and how often do you clean your windshield yeah, due to bugs yeah right well uh, i'm not uh, like you uh, used to good friend of nick of mine uh 
Lucas Fritch, he told me once that he and his wife were driving on the road, and all of a sudden one of them was like, hey, do you remember those bug flectors people used to put on the the front of the, like right above the grill on their oh yeah vehicle. those plastic yeah things. those plastic uh Gosh, I oh, yeah. about those that oh, would yeah. help like deflect the but you still see them on like 2008 ford escapes you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's like now you don't need them yeah. Yeah. i didn't even know that's what they were for yeah those bug flectors yeah i wow. think that's what the, the brand was what, what's the why are there less <clears throat> bugs what are like the biggest reasons oh my gosh we have less insects and biodiversity in general First and foremost, habitat loss, mm-hmm. followed by no particular order, um, climate change, pesticides, invasive species, lights in some cases for um, our nocturnal mm. um, insects, hmm. uh, disease and pathogens, lots of different things. I mean, basically all these interconnected stressors just hitting them all at once. Mm-hmm. Man, that's wild. Because it's interesting because... Uh, in terms of the earth, you know, for the last very long time, humans weren't enough of a force. You know, th- there was just so much untapped land, untapped area. But now one person can can um, cultivate and uh, um, basically bend a thousand acres to their will. One person can do that. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, one person can make can make a bigger ripple than at any other point in known history. Yeah. You know? And so yeah. the the huge con that we are finding out, which if you think about in the grand scheme of like mankind, it's bit, we're like one lifetime into it, maybe a lifetime and a half, you know, or 70 to 100 years into this like grand uh destroying Experiment. Of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh destroying of the earth uh um, not that everyone is doing that, but like, so like if you think about the grand scheme of time, we haven't been swinging this far for that long. Um, and I do think there's time to swing back, but, uh, oh, yeah. um, when you're looking at with like, cause what, um, North American Prairie conference, one of the most common phrases I heard was the insect apocalypse. Uh, you know, that's yes. very scary sounding thing. And it's so extreme that a lot of people that I, you know, that, wouldn't agree with me on a bunch of things would say like, Oh, that's just fear mongers trying to fear monger you. And we're trying to help, <laughs> you know, we're just trying to, yeah. It's like, do you really want to dare live a life without insects? Cause you're not gonna, you're not gonna, no. it's whole, not gonna yeah. go very well. No. The whole, <laughs> they the whole really energy. Do make, invertebrates and insects being a part of that make the world go round. I mean, invertebrates yeah. take up the most biomass and globally. Wow. Yeah, the, yeah, they, they, they're, you know, we think of the energy pyramid; they're right above that primary producer level. Really, I mean, they—they, they, you take out that part of that flow of food energy through our ecosystems, which include us. Um, it, the whole thing collapses, you know, and and so critically important. I think it's also important too. Um, uh, I heard, I've heard some uh, talk on this for a while now and i can be guilty of this too sometimes when we leave that part hanging there that humans are responsible for this which is true i really strongly believe that i would argue i would argue with people over that um but the answer isn't well then we must need less humans no we need we need 
more responsible, more mindful humans. And that starts with acknowledging the fact that we got to change how we're doing some things. And, and we, we um, have more of an effect than what we may want to acknowledge, I think. Yeah. And I personally don't like putting the burden of any sort of social, environmental, et cetera, issue on the shoulders of individuals. I think that's really unfair. So I would love to live in a world where people that were in power yeah. and made decisions yeah, had, had. <laughs> that would actually benefit society as a whole um, because it's not fair to, to that we have to be responsible for all of these things when there's easier ways to go about it to make mm-hmm. impactful change. But that's, yeah. my, that's my soapbox. What do you think would be the most impactful change? Oh, gosh. On which, which on, thing? On, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. On insects. Oh, man. Um, well, of course, like insects, the, the beauty of it is that they can be quite resilient. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a little bit can go a long way. Yeah, so really point. just being able to put in habitat where you can and then like having better laws to designate protected lands like that that's something that i would really want i mean Mm. protected land is key and private land is important for a lot of different reasons too um but you know there's so many things that can come and go and changing hands and people aspect of it um we really need corridors really need more protected land especially in iowa which is you know that's a whole nother conversation um, but they really just need to be able to complete their entire life cycle. And mm. thankfully, insects, and we've seen this with research with bees, in particular native bees, their diversity and abundance actually increases in populated areas where people exist. Um, and wow. many, like the rusty patch bumblebee, for example, we've found many records within city limits, within people's backyards, mm. um, because they can exist in those spaces so long as they have food and shelter and can breed and overwinter. Um, and where people are, you're likely to have flowers, you're likely to have trees or gardens or vegetable gardens, etc. all of which can be utilized by insects. Hmm. Um, so you kind of need those big picture protected areas as well as, you know, just being able to put in habitat wherever you can. Yeah, yeah, like in people's yards and stuff like that. Yep. Well, I like that idea of corridors. And actually, uh, Chris Helzer did mm-hmm. a great job educating Nick and me on that importance of... <clears throat> he, he, I don't want to say too much. I don't want to put words in Chris's mouth. But there's there's a, a, a popular buzz phrase there. How was that for a good dad joke? There you right go. <laughs> um, it hurt my feelings, personally. I got... I got three kids, so I uh, I can get pretty advanced with the dad jokes. Um, but a there's a buzz phrase that very much simplified, and I I still like the phrase. I think it serves a purpose. But but there is a critique to be added in that um, you can't just view this as hey, we just need it wherever we can get conservation acres, so let's get them there. Yeah. But then it's like this island landscape, you know, where you have like a little safe haven over here, and then 
5,000 acres in between there of, you know, just murder zone for, for insects. Then we're going to put another little patch. Well, then how can they ever flow over there and, yeah. and mix genes and, and really, you know, have a thriving, and not just for the butterflies, for the, you know, the, the talk is also about like remnant prairie species, you know, the, they're all isolated like this. They all, those plants become, you know, through years of just, uh, self you know inbreeding yeah they can't they can't really become a healthier population and and so having corridors where we say you know what let's link up these areas complexes right right and you know and that benefits way more than just i mean that's yeah that's the key for i mean uh what's the I'm trying to think of a term from college. I, conservation biology. There we go. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you've seen it with larger. We need to get these guys on the podcast sometime. Um, State of Wyoming has done a great job with their, uh, I think it's mostly mule deer, but I think they're, they might be doing the same thing with uh, uh, pronghorn antelope now as well. Uh, trying to reestablish some of their historic migration routes because mm. um, they will winter further south, which... Uh, brought them to parts of the country where, you know, herds from other states further south would kind of migrate to that same location. And uh, there could be some breeding that went on. And now you're, you know, it's good for the gene pool, right? You had some diversity there. Uh, But through the highways or interstate systems that stretch across those western states they've created this i don't know if you've ever driven out in like wyoming and montana there's speed Parts limits that are like literally the speed limit is 85 miles oh, yeah. an hour oh yeah the speed limit wow 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 oh yeah no, that's not the that's not the <laughs> nine you're fine ten you're mine limit that's uh that's the speed limit you know and so now you're you're sitting there as a mule deer watching these 18 wheelers just zip by you know and I got to get across those four lanes. Got to get across so, Highway 90, dang it. <laughs> that's right, exactly. And so what they did is they put in these these uh, overpasses, these wildlife overpasses oh, yes. and underpasses. I but I think things. the overpasses have been more successful. And they kind of funnel it with fencing along the interstate to, to encourage animals. And they make that overpass not like concrete, you know, that you know, with, with walking lines dividing it. They make it look like habitat, you know, like grass and trees and stuff. And it encourages these animals to continue going on their pathway, and it's a safe corridor. Now, if we could just do that in a smaller form, almost, you know, with, mm-hmm. with, uh, or a bigger form, that'd be great too. Uh, with with invertebrates, you know, it's already proven some success on a larger scale. I think we could do it, do the same there, you know. And Nick's talked about all the time too, the role that big cities could have. If every business, if everyone who's got a little bit of green space had some habitat for these species, then they could yeah. maybe make it through. I mean, there's other hazards there, too, you know. Like, I mean, like the area well, we're I mean, sitting in, like 10 evolution. by 10. Yeah. Right, yeah. We, we encounter, we get in cars and every yeah. day we risk our lives. I risk my life getting here. Um, wow. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Highway 141 oh, on a Monday morning. Goodness. Yeah. I felt like a monarch butterfly. Yeah. Um, Just trying to get south. <laughs> literally. Um, but no, I mean, it's, you know, a lot of people worry about like the mortality. Okay, well, let's stick back to monarch for a second. But the mortality of 
roadside, you know, like that's going to happen. I don't think it's making significant dents, but like, I think people also need to remember that these are wild animals and, you know, fitness is a mm-hmm. thing. And, yeah. You know, that's, there's that's always right. going to be plus and minuses to that. But yeah, for Iowa, it's just a key of, you know, of course, this isn't a surprise to anyone at this table or probably anyone listening if you're from Iowa that in order to make these corridors happen, there has to be, you know, partnerships and relationships amongst agriculture and conservation. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's, it's we're, we're going to be getting there. I hope that it can get better in time, but there's certainly ways that we can benefit. We can meet both stakeholders objectives yeah and and do it in a way that makes sense and place habitat in places where it makes sense yeah yeah Hmm. i have been along those lines i want to give a little round of applause to some local farmers i've been seeing a lot of cover crops going in where i haven't seen them go in in years past this year now obviously that doesn't do much for our pollinators Mm -hmm. but uh Maybe a little bit. There's probably a few little side benefits there, but yeah, but um, it does a lot for the fish does in the Gulf of Mexico, and bumblebees yeah, are just fish. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so, right. Oh my gosh! <laughs> way to go full circle there, Nick. That's yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, I mean it's great for our soil, great for our air um, and water quality. So, if I think landowners, you know, if if they can find a a way that they can implement stuff, they're willing to try it in most cases, and so. You know, and obviously that's where the work from you guys is so important as you really creatively dream up some of that. How do we, you know, what if we try this? You know, and that's that's really critically important, which takes me to the name of Xerxes. I didn't know this. I'm not a butterfly person. Neither I'm becoming more of that all the time because it's so, it's so interesting. But um, uh, the Xerxes... How, how do you the common name is the blue Xerxes? Is that what it is? The blue Xerxes butterfly, and tell us the tragic story. It, it, the ballad it, of the Zer, the blue Xerxes butterfly. Yeah, I don't know it intimately because I wasn't around in the nineteen thirties forties. But um, <laughs> essentially, the Xerxes blue butterfly was the first known butterfly to go extinct due to human. Mm. Um, land use changes, basically habitat loss within the Bay Area uh, in California. And mm. so mm. Robert Pyle, who is our organization's founder, named Xerxes kind of in honor mm-hmm. of that first known North American butterfly to go extinct. So it's, it's a bittersweet story. Xerxes started off as a solely butterfly conservation group um, that was their jam it was completely volunteer based there were no paid employees for quite some time we then um grew and evolved and now have staff of reaching 80 i think we have staff all over the country Um, we've been based out of portland oregon this whole time and we do you know we've broadened our conservation horizon into encompassing all invertebrates and we do work with freshwater mussels fireflies bumblebees monarch is huge um Mm -hmm. etc are fireflies hurting great question a lot of people are getting more concerned about fireflies i do a lot of education and outreach and this like summer alone people are asking a lot more questions about it in parts of the u.s certain fireflies are not doing well um, within like the upper and lower Midwest, um, our firefly populations are fairly stable, um, but you do see less of them. And yeah, I anecdotally have noticed that. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
and yeah, other parts of the country, there are some, like we just petitioned um, out northeast for one or two firefly species to be hmm. listed federally. There's, so I'm imagining like, I don't want to be a settler. I'm not really jealous of what they had to deal with, <laughs> but imagine like hosting up for the night and you get, mm. you're in your wagon and then for like 30 minutes, the sky is just filled with just tiny little yellow suns. Are they in Europe? Are there fireflies? Like, or is it just this continent? I'm not, uh, yeah, that I'm not sure of. I'm not sure of either. I'm not an entomologist. I nah, should have said no. that from the get-go. No, that's all right. I, uh, so with the blue Xerxes, I am, I am curious. Was it a very regional butterfly then? I, not having, again, intimate knowledge of that specific species, I would guess so. But kind of the Xerxes blue, like there's a whole um, category of butterflies that are like considered the blues. But I'm not hmm. a butterfly expert by any means. Well, I want to go. I think this will be your wheelhouse. I've been thinking about this question. And the reason I'm interviewing you <laughs> is because, one, I want to know what you think. But two, um, you know, Jason uh, and Warren County. Yes. Um, Jason Hart. He, he was like, you need to talk to her. She knows. Because I, I made this monarch mix, this monarch pollinator mix. And... I really trust Jason. I think he does a great job and he, he tries his best, which, you know, not all the time in the offices you can say that. So, uh, wow, Nick, none, on, none that we work with regularly. We love our offices. <laughs> they do a great job. Everyone just breathe the sigh of relief that's listening in this. Yeah, yeah, it's not before. Them that I'm not targeting <laughs> them. But he said that he didn't like my monarch mix and thought it could be improved. And I have a bone to pick with him about it. So I'm going to pick it. Through you. Oh, good, because I can pick that bone harder than he can. Yeah. <laughs> so here, here's what I got. Here's what I got. I got 30 species, and okay. they're not just like, or, sorry, 30 wildflowers. Okay. They're not just dumped black-eyed Susan, you know, all that stuff. I got, I've got, i got, I think, five early bloomers, which are the expensive ones. Those are the hard ones to put in mixes. Five early bloomers. Do you have the mix on your computer right now? I do. Uh, I do. It's somewhere here. Okay. And um, Just curious. But the, but here, here was what was getting me. They wanted me to pull out the Indian grass, which is okay, but they didn't want me to pull out the big blue stem because they said that the Indian grass was the one that um, was like overbearing. Okay. And I would have thought that before I took out Indian grass, I would have taken out big blue stem. I did as they say, because I do like Jason, and I think it'll still be a great mix. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, uh, I don't think it's going to make or break there's one or the other i would say that big blue they're both dominant species but i would probably put big blue just slightly ahead of indian grass but i mean to me it's like you know i don't know if that's really worth arguing too much about because <laughs> at the end of the day they're both more yeah. aggressive than other species <laughs> and we it, yeah and we and i think you would be happy the amount of so I have half a seed a square foot of Big Blue, half a seed of Switchgrass, which for anyone listening, if you were listening to Justin Misen's uh, interview, we talk a lot about seeds per square foot. Perfect. There's anywhere between 40 and 60. 60 is really on the high end. 40 is what is considered like government standard for their... For um, Iowa. For us. For Iowa. Yeah. It's not the same in every state. Yes. Yeah, that is which, true. Which you have a little mini rant on some other states. Yeah. Yeah. Just be thankful you don't live in the Great Plains or, or <laughs> elsewhere. 
How, uh, who, does, who does it the best? What NRCS does it the best, do you think? Well, I think that because Iowa has such a prairie heritage and the fact that you know, we have this really valuable ecosystem that we're barely holding on to. We're the most altered state in the country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have yes. had some hardcore rock star prairie people. So I think we were really kind of the, the, I don't know, the starters. First to the table. Yes, there you go. And But Minnesota is rivaling us and but really pushing. But so bad. Oh, I their calculators. We don't have to go down that route. But it like so they're, they're, they're pushing the envelope for seed mixes and diversity oh, in general. So yeah. anyone listening, calculators is how we figure out what actually goes in a mix and what will end up being on the ground. And it's like a very complicated how many seeds per square foot equal to how many pounds of each species. Well, well and even uh, again, this is the key word today, anecdotally, uh, Nick and I, after we went up to Pheasant Fest and we talked to so many different landowners up there, there is a very strong spirit. And of course, I mean, you have the filtering of we're at Pheasant Fest, but just, I mean, the landowners we talked to, they were knowledgeable and they cared a lot about the quality of their conservation acres, which I don't know. I think there's just a good attitude of that in general in the state of Minnesota. And I think it's because they have some areas there you know i think of the boundary waters you know wilderness area up there oh man it's it, beautiful yeah and just pristine you know and they they know how easy it is to ruin something like that and if you're going to protect it you got to be you got to well, know they, your stuff they've experienced like real outdoors like a lot of people in iowa it was actually interesting my cousin from a big city i'll say was out for my wedding and later i was talking to her and she was like yeah, it was one of the most amazing things in my life running out there in the nature of Iowa. She was like running through cornfields, and I was like, ah, well. <laughs> but like, imagine- but compared to like LA or oh, something, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, or Chicago, or yeah, yeah, where it's so packed in. That okay. Um, two things, Kent. I would like more of your Dutch letter, and Sarah. What do you think? Uh, mm. Can I have the rest? Yes. Yes. Thank you, Kent. Uh, what I'm buying do you a blonde? Yeah, my Be way honest, out of here. But, but rip it apart if you think it's bad. Um. So I'm pretty pretty content with your uh, grasses and sedges uh, for the most part. I don't really have a whole lot to say about that. Ex- yeah, that that makes sense. But sorry, but um, <laughs> moving into the wildflowers, I haven't looked. Let's see, let's see. So like, I think I have twenty total. So, yeah, numbers matter, but other things matter, too. Actually, you have way more than 20. You've got, like, 45 wildflowers in this mix. <laughs> Nick, well, Nick said that low number 20, just to, no, no, to set it up. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. So it's a, it's a oh, 20, do I? 20, 20 mix. <laughs> so it's Look, 50% grasses. This whole meeting is just so you can tell me how amazing I am making mixes. <laughs> oh, what, would you look at that? 40. <laughs> so, so, okay, Nick. In front of everyone. Um you s- it says at the top that this is a music mix, yet there are lots of wetland species in mm-hmm. there. Because by far the most common reason this is bought is not government. It's for um, people's yards. Mm-hmm. And we're finding, we work with contractors that like plant people's yards. Mm-hmm. They have like these low spots. And most people, not everyone, most people I'm noticing aren't overly excited to do the work about like getting a small area with a different wet mix that costs more so i'm trying to find a good middle ground for that 
So I've got mm-hmm. like seed box and monkey flower, and I, um, oh, common mountain mint, which I think technically is a mystic, but it goes really well. Common Blue. mountain mint has a pretty wide range. Yeah, that's Blue a good species. That's a good that just there? like staple species um, I for think an Amex. Blue lobelia and um, Blue vervain, I think, are in there. Yeah, those are some of the, yeah, those are true wet. Um, the other thing, so. Yeah, it's just like some of these species are are, are pretty extreme. Um, and so it also feels like you did that with the wildflowers, but your grass mix is very mesic to dry. Mm-hmm. And d- it doesn't reflect what's going on with your wildflower mix. Um, so maybe some more uh, sedges included in there. Well, sedges, um, sedges can occupy dry and or wet spaces. They can yeah, sedges one awesome. or the other or or... Um, both. Um, many of our native species have a really wide tolerance for sun exposure as well as soil moisture regimes, which is really nice. But then there are others that are like, they will not grow in dry places or in really mm-hmm. wet places. The other thing, like one, um, the Maximilian sunflower, it's a really high seeding rate, but um, the, the silphiums just... Mm-hmm. And the sunflowers hardly need anything to really go and be planted. But yeah. cardinal flower is not a statewide species. So another I didn't th- even know that. I know yeah. I know um what's that one? Co- common or western yarrow. Yarrow, I know basically gets yes. up to the Lust Hills, but it's so cheap that I've seen like three seeds a square f- a square foot and I'm like, oh, oh man, that's like lazy. You know? Yeah, That's yeah. Like, but I did not know that Cardinal wasn't a full. Yeah, so there are lots of different um, resources out there to look at range maps. And, and again, many of our species can occupy the vast majority of the state. But there are some that it's like, no, that doesn't make sense to put that there. Because, you know, historically it was not there. Where is it? Do you know where it Northeastern is? Northeastern Iowa, mostly. Really? It's, a wet, it's yeah. a kind of a wet species, right? Cardinal flower? Yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. it's a wetter species, um, but it can tolerate, you know, some shade. And What about in the Iowa Great Lakes region, uh, Okaboji, Dickinson County area? Is, is much cardinal flower up there? I'd have to revisit the range map because there are, you know, it's... There could be some historical data up in that region. I just right now don't have it memorized to be sure. able to confidently answer yeah. that. But like wild quinine, that's another species mm. that's really like the northeastern third of the state. Mm. Um, but like looking at county maps that you know have herbarium data where it's like this has been collected here. Mm-hmm. You can look at it, and even if there's like surrounding counties where it's blank. You can pretty much infer that it's, you know, it's probably native there. They just don't have the record for it. Sure. But then, like, um, things like uh, Blue Grama, very much a Western species. Yep. That's another one that you see, like, dumped in mixes. It's a very, "Ah." for whatever reason, the vendors out there, like, in the last year or two, like, got on the Blue Grama train. And I was like, let's not. Let's get off. Yeah. Unless you're doing stuff in the Lost Hills. I think we only sell it. Maybe I'm wrong, because I do like diversity just in general, but I think we mostly only sell it in turf mixes. Mm. So we'll do like the buffalo grass side, oh, sure. side oats grama, um, blue grama. Yeah, or, that's a whole other you know, scenario. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, to me, turf mixes, it's like, well, it's definitely not a prairie, but it is a step above 
You know, way better than yeah. turf. And if you're willing to spend the extra money on buffalo grass, which I did the math, it's not much more expensive than like normal seed grass or uh, like normal lawn well, grass. People might wonder what is that really doing for habitat value. Um, maybe not a whole lot if it's getting you know just mowed like a regular yard, right? Yeah. But what I think you could say it does is it almost creates a a seed stock holding spot you know like if things ever really got bad and we needed a place to go and get seed stock from you're like almost creating like this little side holding thing your yard could become that which is pretty cool to think about i mean let alone also the roots on sod not for soil useless so when you got your natives but so the buffalo grass is really cool because a little more expensive and when i say you're talking about like a thousand bucks an acre which you know if you only have one or a quarter acre of your lot and you know a third of it's your house and then the rest of it you're just planting once every 10 years in buffalo grass right well you don't have to mow yes you that is nice do not have to mow and you will not break city code right man i've been Hashtag hit with some city codes yeah <laughs> oh, yeah man. you're cutting down on emissions you're cut you know and people having a native lawn probably aren't laying down too many fertilizers and and pesticides you know so you're yeah. cutting that down as well so yeah, you definitely can do a lot of something else there. with your time like yeah. anything else yeah right <laughs> look i i've got some friends for whatever reason that's what they want to do with their time they want to be out oh, there yeah. picking out every single dandelion in their yard and uh i'm kind of like well, all right yeah. then, you know. You do you, I guess. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, so out of ten, be honest. Out of ten, out and of 10. from what I have seen over the last six years with seed mixes, you know, I'd give it a seven. A seven? That's I'll take good. that. I'll take my C. I, I'm seeing <laughs> improvement, which I like. Good. Um, so how does he get? How does he get that <clears throat> up to an A? Yeah, how do I how get, get that? A C how do I get up that to ten? Um, making it a little more balanced in the soil moisture regime. And I understand that those wetland species help get you to your seeds per square foot, but that is such a diverse mix. I don't even think that would. Yeah. No, we don't need them in terms of price. But here's, here is something that is the geographical range. Yeah. Here is something I find very difficult is I can make, the world's best mix and and every year i could send all my mixes to you um and make sure that they're a 10 out of 10 and i would love to do that uh but right now there are people selling monarch mixes for like 220 bucks you know and i think ours is like 270 and that like that is really low it's our lowest margin we make the least money on that mix even Mm. though it's the most expensive out of any of them just because i want to get it out there uh i want to get that diversity out there but the um so when we're competing with those lower quality mixes which but they're still within specs you know they're still within um and then so i now, I know a gentleman who does conservation, and he only does it for the people who want to do the absolute best. He doesn't even give a quote. He gives a not-to-exceed quote. Okay. He's like, yep, I'll come out, work on your land. It's not going to exceed $10,000. And he's like, probably anywhere between 7 and 10 You know, and, and uh, he does those kinds of things. So he can put whatever he wants or um, finds desirable or is perfect for the soil. 
And so I find it's not the knowledge because, I mean, there's people like you, Laura Walter, um, Tabitha Panis. I email any of you guys at any point and be like, hey, can you look this over? And I, w- I might do that from now on. Just hey, so you know, you might get I'm more emails from me. But uh, <laughs> trying, to, trying to get those, that grade up, that GPA. Um, but then being able to compete with a price. Right. And it's not – I'm not blaming those other companies. The bigger thing to me is convincing people that the extra price is worth it. I, Absolutely. You know what I mean? I mean because that, that's the thing. It's like some of those lower quality mixes. Um, you know, you're spending – like I think – if there was time to sit down with them and really go over it, it's like you're wasting your money. Like, yeah, because some of that stuff might not grow or they're putting a lot of bank on all of those early successional species that are going to show up in the first couple of years. And then if there's yeah. no active management, it's just going to go to the wayside yeah, and there's the- nothing there to replace because there's not a balanced representation of early mid and late successional species. So, I mean, I, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, it's why I have a job and many other people have jobs. Um, yeah. But people don't wake up and go, hey, oh, hey I'm a biologist. Like, yeah. I yeah, can evaluate yeah. seed mixes. I can do this and that. I can put a prairie <laughs> back. Um, but the more conversations that we can have with, I mean, part of my job is training NRCS staff because mm-hmm. not every field office has, they might have equal playing knowledge in terms of the clients that they're serving because they didn't go to school for that. And they're expected to know a little bit about everything. Right. Engineering, cover crops, nutrient management, grazing, prairies. I mean. Fire. Yeah. yeah. It's an intimidating job that I wouldn't want. Yeah. Um, so training them, for those interested, you know, to better equip them with the tools to have the conversations with customers. And then any chance that you're doing education and outreach having those conversations and then having the vendors and everything involved too. I really love what you and I has done with the native seed stakeholder meetings and having people that deal with seed mixes be in the same room because it just was not happening yeah. prior to. Yeah. And just it's like, you don't know what you don't know. Oh yeah. 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 It, it, ignorance is uh, prevalent and King. Um, well, it's a hard balance too in that, you know, I think Nicholas was, was hitting at this, but you know, for for the landowner, they can't break the bank on, you know, buying a super expensive mix, you know, mm-hmm. uh, under the current way of cost sharing works and stuff like that. The seed producer, you know, some of these species are very expensive because they're super hard to grow and super hard to get a crop off of. And I think what we're starting to see uh, is some of the effects of our changing climate on just raising some of these species is, is getting more challenging. And, and, um, so it's hard not to lose money just in producing them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so then you're left here as the listener of this podcast going, okay, so what do we need to do? We all just got to fork out more cash out of our wallet, either to taxes or to just saying, yeah. you know what, for the greater good, here's a thousand bucks. Give me my, <laughs> my one pound of true, perfect, you know, pollinator yeah. habitat seed mix. And I think the, the answer to that is possibly, but probably we could take money that's already being taken out of our wallets and making it do more for us yeah uh, um you know uh, there's huge cans of worms that we could open up right now so on many. on subsidies on 
on. Um, Do you have someone the, who no, is an expert on ag subsidies? We're trying to interview someone. Um, we can't find anybody. I would reach out to someone. Well, and you can tell us after. You know, you yeah. don't have to. Yeah. You don't have to <laughs> throw anybody <laughs> out there on the. <laughs> you don't put it on blast or whatever. <laughs> Make a note. <laughs> but, yeah. I'm already going to show you some things on the calculator. I'm like, good, oh, good, 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 good. Yeah. We'll have a whole learning session. But, you know, I think there's money that's already being spent, even on things that are good, like uh, cost sharing, you know, on some stuff. Maybe we could make that make more sense, you know. And uh, so where does that come from? Well, that goes back to, you know, the whole punch or not punch slogan, I guess, at the end of every episode that Nick came up with, which is great. Uh, Conservation happens one mind at a time. We change minds, and then we say, now that we know something, we got to get to action, and we got to be involved at starting at the local level where these decisions are made on up to the federal level where a lot of those money, that money is, you know, distributed out from. And, to yeah, poli- cons- policy is huge yeah, when it comes to conservation. Absolutely. People don't, don't always associate that together and people roll my eyes when I talk about it, but at the local, at the state, at the federal level, policy makes the world go round and change happens from the bottom up. Yes. We're going to be waiting forever still if, if we're going to count on, you know, a top down situation, right. it's just not going to happen. And you know, it's, it, it can get really complicated talking about how do we get conservation on the ground? Everything costs money, yada, yada. Well, in Iowa, when, you know, 90 some percent of us aren't farmers and Mm. a lot of farmers can't afford it, not every single one of them, but a lot of them can't afford it. Mm. And when 90 percent of us, why, you know, we're tax, why we're giving, we're doing our share through taxpayer dollars. So I think some people can cough up a little extra Mm. 200 bucks to put conservation down on the ground. Get the, get Go from a okay, you know, or even a good mix to the best mix. And I think, like, if we get them to that point and it all goes well, I mean, they're not they're not going to regret it. They're heroes. They, I mean, I don't they, know if I'd yeah. go that far, but. Well, 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 well you know what <laughs> I mean? But I mean, like, like, like they, they're going to love what they have. Yeah. Well, they're going to be th- proud yeah. of it. Yeah, and if they did it, like, if they, if it truly cost them money to do the best thing for everybody. That to me is a heroic move, you know, to to be willing to do that, and and uh, you know that's and it, and that, that's of, got value in of itself. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. Iowa, what a fun place um, in the conservation world. But yeah. yeah, conservationists are a lot of people in Iowa are doing selfless work day in and day out, all the time, not getting paid for it. Yes. And yeah. Yep, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of heroes that already exist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yep, it's that like, is absolutely true. Yeah, it's like if everyone just you know. Well, and there's value in just doing the right thing because it's the right thing. Yeah. You know, I've been listening to Sam Walton's autobiography. He's the guy who founded uh, Walmart. Oh, and, interesting. Um, <laughs> now there's a controversial yeah, I was like, topic. Where are we going? <laughs> I'm excited. What's well, going? he uh, uh, he titled the book um, "Made in America." And what is really interesting is uh, he loves conservation. He really, he really does. He talks about it several times in the book. He loves to hunt. Um, loved. I think he's Yeah, he's been gone. gone for a while. Yeah. yeah. But I wouldn't say he was, like, 
bad in his thing. He, he seemed very narrow-minded. What was important to him, it did seem like other people were important to him. He was trying to get his customers the cheapest product ever to the point where if he got a discount, he would just carry it over to his customers. So he never made extra money from discounts, always his customers coming in. Which on that side, you're like, wow, that's really good. But he had like two goals, make money and make his customers happy. And uh, and if that is all your goals, if that's all that's valuable to you in life, like then you're not going to care about conservation. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to, you're not going to worry about it. You're not going to take steps to go for it because um, in order for people to, for us to make differences, we have to value things. You, right. You ba- your value system is what you base your whole life. Every single decision comes out of your value system. So if you value invertebrates brain around, and usually the value of invertebrates is, or the lack thereof, is just due to ignorance. Like, hey, just right. so you know, if those things go extinct, uh, you perish. You die. Like, you, we don't make it as a species without all the invertebrates. Right. And basically none of the other species make it. Except for, I know they're also grass. invertebrates. <laughs> yeah. Reed canary grass. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> It'd be the one, the one thing left on earth just yeah. filled with reeds, canary grass. But so when we change that, uh, so when we experience or we're enlightened for a better term, when we learn, we have an updated value system and that's okay. Your values can change. That's yes. not the end of the world. In fact, yeah. It's, Fluid. yeah, it's probably the productivity of the world is them changing. Then we can actually get to actions that are changing it. And I've been saying this a lot on the podcast. It's one thing to change a person's mind. It is very different to change a crowd or a culture's mind. Yeah. They're just not even the same. They're two totally different study. Like psychology studies it two totally different ways. They're not. They're not addressed the same way. You can't. The they're way completely that completely different. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. totally different. The way groups. that I would connect with you as a person and inspire change. That's not. It just doesn't happen with the crowd. Um, Mark Twain. I love his quote. Uh, I've rarely ever met a crazy person, but. In large crowds, it seems to be a necessity. Hey, yeah, you, know, yeah, you should have seen the this Facebook. So true today. You should have seen the Facebook war between Nick and uh, Sarah on a seed mix before they came. No. Here. I'm just kidding. I'm, just kidding. No. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Jason's gonna be proud of me. I'm gonna send this to Jason, and and oh, I'm gosh. gonna be like, look here, Jason. I'm gonna make some changes. I'm gonna do what Sarah says. Update my price. You're like I told you so. No, I'm yeah. just kidding. Who did? Yeah. I had someone build me a mix. I cannot remember who it was or someone like recommended a bunch of speeches I put in mix and I was like oh let's just make this mix this is a great mix and I could not get that mix to be less than $800 an acre and I was like okay these are great things we're gonna give up a few of them (laughs) but I yeah I really do appreciate you going over this mix just so everyone knows I am not the foremost expert I know a lot but Nick puts together good mixes though too. Yeah. Like, I think yeah. I think Nick did, like goes back to what Sarah's saying. Nick's not a biologist. He's never claimed to be one. Yeah. He's had yeah. to learn all this and along I, the way. I learned how to do seed mixes self taught. I was basically in a previous position. It was just like here, make seed mixes. Mm-hmm. I'm like, uh. mm-hmm. but I had actually been propagating seed prior to for three years with the Iowa DNR at the Prairie Resource mm-hmm. Center. So at least oh, like yeah, yeah. new seeds, I could identify seeds. I knew plants. I had base knowledge, but it takes years of practice oh, and yeah. I'm constantly learning, even though I'm quote unquote an yeah. expert in terms of NRCS, but, and things are changing all the time. And you yeah. guys know that dad's yeah. been doing it like 36 or 37 years. And we make big mistakes every single year on like growing. It's just, it's hard. It's turns out it's hard to mimic evolution. That's been happening since the last ice age. It's yeah. tough. <laughs> and it's like, we're not going to have 
in these prairie reconstructions, we're not going to have perfect remnant. We can't, we're humans. We can't replicate that. Yep. But we can well put said. something back that's better than what we have. And I think the more we can get people just connected with nature alone. My favorite thing as a private lands biologist is going out on a field visit, like before a project, during a project, whatever. Post projects, really great. And being like, look at this brood of pheasants. Look, there was a monarch. Yeah. And then being like, wow, I've not really ever associated those things mm-hmm. with this land. Yeah. And like they can actually see the, you know, look, yeah. <laughs> like just yeah. look at it or get, you know, the, yeah. the old guys, like the 80 year old men that get down on their hands and knees and look at yellow star grass because they found out that they have a remnant you know, Mm -hmm. sedge meadow that they didn't know. And they're just like, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I got a question for you. Yes. Yeah. I, I, you might've thought about this before. Everyone else I've asked was not prepared. Okay. (laughs) Harvest season basically is done. There might be a couple scragglers out there, but let's say all the corn and beans get ripped up out of the ground. And then on December 1st, every single human in Iowa and let's say surrounding States packs their bag and leaves. Leaves their houses, leaves the city stuff, leaves. What happens to uh, the ground and the nature in Iowa and surrounding states? Because you remember, like, 90% of it right now is And the nature. I like that general term. (laughs) Outdoors. What happens to the landscape? (laughs) What happens? Well... Uh, nature keeps on ticking. Yeah. Nature doesn't care whether we're here or not here. And all the fields, those annual weeds are going to come up like crazy. And then other plants are just going to occupy those spaces. Good plants, bad plants. Um, yeah, it's just going to keep on rolling. What do you think would be dominant? You think big blue stem would, would come rolling back? Because there's no buffalo to keep big blue stem in, in check. I don't think... Or bison, I guess. I would assume that all of the introduced species that we've brought over would have the competitive edge in most of those disturbed spaces, like the crop fields and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, it you would think take, they would? Yes. It would take a long time for any... Unless there was like a native population. I mean, because you think about Iowa, most of it's a ag desert. And so like it would take a long time for any of those remnants or other existing native small pockets that are out there to yeah. recolonize these other places. Do you think, but Brome and Reed's Canary, they do it quickly. Do I mean, think? yeah, they, they well, that's probably, a, that's a species eventually just do though. just fine. Yeah. And they're sod yeah. forming. They grow by rhizomes. And, well, but what I mean yeah. is like, do you think they would just Reed's Canary and different kinds of Brome and orchard grass would just take over Pennsylvania and, smart. weed? there'd be our native, oh our one native plant <laughs> yeah, that would still last. <laughs> <laughs> There'd be a few others. <laughs> Um, no field thistles do very well. They yeah, would, honeysuckle they, would probably just go oh, right yeah. in all the woodlands. Autumn olive. I mean, that's, I mean, but then what, yeah, would that just, it would just be, okay, December 1, we've just entered a new era in time. Yeah. And it's probably not a great one, but. Well, so someone I was talking to said you got about 100 years of like, you know, annuals and some grasses. And then you, the forest starts taking over because there's nothing. Well, to yeah, that's it. true. Actually, no. You mulberry you're trees totally everywhere. Right. It would just be trees. <laughs> just be trees everywhere. Eventually, yeah. yeah. You think yeah. oaks would come like be able mm. to last without having their savannas and stuff? Oh gosh. What? Maybe yeah, that's a good, I don't that's know. I mean, question. they're they're pretty imperiled within the state. Probably almost more so, or as much as our prairies. Um, that's a good question. Without disturbance of some kind. Hmm. I don't know. 
I, I, re- I find and maybe, that so maybe we would get our elk back. Maybe we would get, yeah. you know, yeah. bison that'd be cool. and the bison from the Black Hills would be let loose and they'd come <laughs> back home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're in their home, but like come the other home. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's an interesting thought. But Man, trees, there's some actually, like saber tooth tigers hiding out in those same ice caves. Up in <laughs> More thing, bobcats. Like, yeah. <laughs> Living off the snails. Bears. <laughs> Living, yeah, it sounds like a good stuff. time. I mean, yeah. Yeah. sounds like journey to the center of the earth, which just happens in <laughs> Iowa. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, I, I got to go back. When you're looking at a good pollinator mix, sure. not just like a strong grassland mix. Oh, wow. That was a hard pivot. Dude, I, that's, that's how my brain works, man. Uh, so we critiqued mine. What are you looking for to what are like some key things you're looking for in those mixes to distinguish if they're good or not? Sure. So when I evaluate a seed mix, um, first of all, I'm going to look at species composition and hopefully have an understanding of where it's going to be seeded because uh, that's pretty important to know the, the hydrology and soil moisture, regime, sun exposure, etc. So I want to make sure that just the species selected makes sense first okay. and foremost. Mm. And, the, and when you say like the location, you, the two main things is how much sun and how wet. basically, And, and also like where it exists in Iowa. That's okay, important yeah, to know yep. too. Yep. Um, and like, is it a conversion? Is it going into a crop field? Mm. Because there are advantageous things that you can play with to work to your advantage if you're doing a conversion from like smooth brome to natives, for example, using some competitive species. That's kind of next level, but those are things I think about. Um, Next, it's like your basic, okay, are we meeting the qualifications for three flowering species in the bloom, spring, summer, fall? Generally, yes. Um, Then it's like, okay, what, what species are being represented and what is the percentages of those species in the mix. Um, again, we don't, oftentimes we see a lot of mixes that are really, really heavy with early successional species, and that's not a good thing. Because um, mm-hmm. those are the cheapest, they're the easiest to grow. So exactly. you get them so cheap per seed, and they can just dump them in, make cheap mixes. Yes, and more so for whatever reason, we're evaluating mixes that have like more than 10% of wildflower, like one species has more than 10%. So it's not even, it's automatically doesn't even meet for that reason. Does it have 40 seeds per square foot? What is, so at the bottom of our seeding calculator, um, it will tell you, you know, your totals for the native functional plant groups. So the grasses and sedges, forbs and legumes, if you have shrubs like lead plant, New Jersey tea, et cetera. So it'll give you the total seeds per square foot. It'll give you the species richness, however many species you have in the mix total, and then your coefficient of conservatism. So I also pay attention to that number because if you're at about five, that's a pretty well-balanced mix between early, mid, and successional species. Then I look at the uh, floral quality index number, and if it's like my minimum is like 30. And if it's 30 or above, I consider that pretty good. Um, But basically, just making sure that the seeding rates make sense and that the composition makes sense, that it's a diverse mix, that it's actually going to meet the needs of the... What's diverse? Because, like, in the West, diverse is is like 10 species. Yes, exactly. So (laughs) in NRCS world, diverse is 10 species or more. In my world, it's... 
um, I would say a, a minimum of 30 or more species. Yeah, is that's diverse. our, that's kind of what we shoot for is a minimum of 30. And then which we isn't do, too hard to accomplish. No, no. The, the one thing is like CP2, like tall grasslands. That's kind of where we're like, you know, yeah, they're just not made to be long lasting pollinator fields, which would be way yeah. better if we had more of those. I mean, you know. even if we had more CP2, which is really just native grass stands with a couple of wildflowers is better than nothing. But the yeah, main the main resource concerns there are water quality and soil erosion. It's not pollinators. It's not particularly wildlife. Yeah. It's just native vegetation. Um, so those pollinator mixes have different parameters, different yeah. goals and objectives. Um, but those are, the, yeah, are there nectar plants? Are there, um, you know, bees, for example, some are very specialized and they can only forage on certain, you know, families or certain genera. Um, so are those represented? You know, it's just, it's, it's when you think about pollinator, there's so many different insects to serve. There's a lot of different things that you could think about. Yeah. But most of the time, if you have at least, you know, 20 or more wildflower species, you're likely going to be checking all those boxes mm -hmm. and you don't yeah. have to think about it too intimately. Yeah. That's what, uh, and there's so, also something else I'll show you, but yeah, yeah we don't yeah. even talk about that down in the weeds there. <laughs> Dude, dad, uh, I heard him say this once. And I quote him all the time. It'll fill in. And his idea is that, uh, if you get good diversity and by di diversity, I don't mean 0.01 seeds a square foot of like something, you know, that's just, unless it's, you know, like cut plant, that's, hundred uh, percent acceptable. Yeah. 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 <laughs> or, or cause Justin was telling me for the most part, the bigger, the seed, the higher the success rate. So mm -hmm. really big seeds like rattlesnake master, roundhead, bush clover, you can put a lot less in and yes. they're still going to yes. show up. Whereas, uh, asters, you need to dump in two seeds a square foot sometimes to be getting yeah, or golden rods yes. or, yeah, or yeah. like the wetland species. Those seeds are super duper, duper, duper tiny. Oh yeah. Lobelias, um, well even Culver's root. So they would need a higher seeding rate and it, you know, it all kind of makes sense if you, think, yeah. you know, visualize it, think about it. Yeah. But yeah. So his idea is if you get that, uh, good diversity in a mix, uh, it might take longer, but mother nature will, will, and, and you're having good, um, managing Management. practice. Yeah. Exactly. That's a big deal. Fire, make sure yes. you're mowing the first year and a half. I mean, there's well, and, so and many things that keep that play mowing into success. And, and using fire at the right times too, for your, oh, yeah. for your objectives, you know, and you know, that's something that we should do. We've, we've definitely talked about fire on here a lot, but, but I think that'd be a good episode to do in the future, Nick, where we oh, people really dive into the science. You know, any fire experts? Oh yeah. Yeah, I can give you names. If you yeah. want to know, like, anybody to talk about anything, yeah. <laughs> I'm a very well-connected person. <laughs> good, good. We need that. Yeah. Yeah. Our topic, Sherpa. There we go. <laughs> but, Man. no, this is, this is so good to go through these issues and talk about them because... We covered a lot of ground. Yeah, and, I mean, it's the stuff that where all the yeah buts, you know, come from is, you know, that's all great, but... You know, yeah. what about this? And it's true. And and uh, I think I used this phrase or, or statement in a recent Coffee Time episode, but I, I just heard it the other day, and I thought it was – I think I'd heard it before, but it had been a while. I had to read one of his books in uh, one of my uh, – in my macroeconomics class in college, uh, Thomas Sowell. 
who's like uh, this really oh, yeah. wise, real famous old economist. Yeah, dude, that's what I live for macroeconomics. Yeah, I had to take. I was a science major, but I had to, you know, you had to get those extra. I electives. didn't have to do that. Yeah, well, <laughs> should have yeah. gone to Drake, man. Yeah. Drake. Anyways, I had to take this class, and and I I read one of his books. I can't remember what it was called. I think it had the word hand in the title, <laughs> but <laughs> wasn't the invisible hand. That was another famous economist, but. Uh, um, Anyways, his quote was, there's no solutions, there's just trade-offs. Mm. And that's true. Like, that's, that's, a, that's a good, and that and yeah. it kind of goes back to what, yeah, it kind yeah, of goes back to what Sarah's talking about. We're never going to make a remnant ourselves, you know? Like, so we can't get there, but what's a good trade-off that we can all live with? And I think it's all of these things that we talk about, even going back to, like, the monarch situation. How do we, how do we, once it does get its designation. If. If. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Yes, if. yes. I should be too optimistic here. Speaking but of deep if, faith, if once, it, yeah. once it does. If it gets its designation, you know, what's that going to look like for everybody? What's, and the same thing for, you know, getting better seed mixes out there on the ground that support pollinators better. And, and what's the, the best trade off? You know? Or less work for y'all in the long run if, yes, you, if exactly. you can get that out there up front and do all the other things. Well, but. And it puts other things. When you build a good foundation for a house, you can do more for longer with that house later on, you know, whereas if the foundation is not good, you can't put that big addition on, you know, 30 years from now when. Well, the people in my house tried (laughs) tried, (laughs) and it's falling apart. Right, right. And so if you want to, you know, I, we hear this all the time. People are like, man, I'd love to have elk back. And I went, me too. It ain't happening until we got a whole lot more habitat out yeah, here for yeah. elk, you know. Yeah. And same with oh. bison. Same with, same with uh, you know, black bears. And I think some of those species are closer than others to, to having a recovered status. I was talking um, to, I was telling you this, I was talking to a landowner the other day. And he, it was on his land and he would just gotten done hunting. And um, we we're talking about quail. Mm. And uh, yeah, they've been gone for a little while, but don't worry, they'll come back. And I'm thinking like. Where's his nope. optimism coming yeah. from? <laughs> yeah. Unless you do some major changes there, yeah. buddy. That's but not, not only does he have to do changes, but he has to do changes for the next 40 miles south of right. him. To right. Right. Chain for them to even want to come up to his land. And, yeah. Yeah. Depending know, on where but he I'm is. Not, not there to tell him how wrong he is. Uh, but, but the point in here lies he can listen that to this and find if out. you have that quality stand now, which needs to be managed by grazers, really. I mean, that's how it was. Those native prairies were established. They, Yes. <laughs> they adapted to grazing. You know, uh, if we don't, if we're going to have those things back, we have to have the foundation in place, which is the grassland, the prairie habitat that supports those organisms. And, uh, uh, you know, opting for the CP42 instead of the CP2, if you can, mm-hmm. um, makes a lot of sense. And, and uh, I also feel a little bad for Nick. You know, Sarah was very nice to him. It's not because of that, but he he laid himself on the line here a little bit. I do want to say, I do want to say that Nick does a he talks about his his seed mix plans with me all the time, and uh, he puts a lot of effort into making those be a good trade off. We go back to the trade off, you know, yeah. statement. He tries to find the best circumstance that he knows how to do, yeah. and I and really when you stack it up to a lot of other places where you can buy seed out there where our seed mixes are at, at, at the top of the list. 
Yeah. Also, and that's here's the thing. Nick's, that's Nick's efforts. It's hard to like say this to customers, right? When you're talking to them, one of my one of my main things at my job is to figure out if a customer wants the cheapest thing possible, or if they're willing to spend money for a nicer option. You can ask them, uh, but they almost always say cheaper. The but, do you ever just like do you ever have a conversation without immediately having money be the I guess I don't know if it's the first thing you talk about or not, but like, do you ever frame conversations as just a conversation and figuring out what their yes, goals and objectives are? If it's are? not with a farmer. Oh. Yep. If it's not with a farmer. I, lo- so do you see like the different, uh, I don't know if it's attitudes or what the right yeah, terminology Yeah, to how I'm approaching the conversation. Well, just, I just mean like with your clients. Oh, like, yeah. There's, you know, because oh, yeah. I, usually, if you know, I, 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 I'm not in your shoes, so I don't yeah. know what it's like to be. Usually if someone's calling and they're calling about like a pollinator in their yard or they're building a pond and they want to put something out there, you know, something that's a smaller quantity and they're doing it just because they want it with conservation. They're not thinking about money. So I'm not thinking about money. Okay. We're thinking about what is the absolute best. And a lot of those end up just being custom mixes. Sure. Sure. Um, more often than not, if we are, I wouldn't say more often than not. A lot of the times, if we are getting a call from um, a landowner, um, especially absentee landowners, mm-hmm. then um, we the conversation pretty quickly. What, what's the cheapest thing you have? Okay. Which is a bummer, but yeah. uh, and and still better than nothing though. Yeah. Too, you know? Oh yeah. yeah, for sure. And mm-hmm. I, I won't I won't put like introduced Forbes like Red Clover or something like. Uh, Appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, so there's some cheap mixes out there. There's like sixty dollars. Oh mixes yeah, out you there can that you're really, like, you know, yeah, I can, make a race to the bottom. Yeah, but, yeah. but um, I, I just don't think that's helping anyone. I don't think it's helping the landowner if they're wanting to get you know pheasants out on their land. And a lot of times that's what it is with with landowners. They're not just like, well, I'm just doing it for money. You know, a lot of times absentee landowners, hey, I want pretty good hunting habitat, and then I give them options. Got it. Um, uh, so I we always have like a a beefed up version of basically every mix where it's like, Hey, this, and I would recommend, uh, doing this. Um, if people are local, they're usually a little more willing to hear cause they like us. They trust sure, us. They sure. don't, they don't think we're trying to like screw over local people. They know me or my dad. Um, so they'll kind of just take the quote at, at face value. Um, if people are calling me out of state or, you know, I've never heard of us, then that's like a totally different conversation yeah, because yeah. they're feeling it out everywhere. Right, I've right. even told people like if they've got a smaller acreage in an area, then I'll just tell people um, like, Hey, actually there's a really cool company near you. I did this just the other day. I just tagged them in a, or I just put them in an email chain with the other person I said, they've got a local seed near you and they're going to be basically the same price. You know, they're going to be right, comparable right. to us. Just get it from them. You don't have to pay the shipping fee. Yep. Uh, Cause I, I, I don't want to be like the big prairie company in the Midwest. I want to be the prairie company for our good geographic location. And, and then I want a different prairie company to grow stuff in right. their geographic. And I just right. think that makes more sense. It goes better to be a little more local. And, um, but I'm, I'm on a, a tangent about what I was talking about with, with customers. It, it is really refreshing talking to people about their yards because usually the money amount, one, they don't, normally care they've they've got the money or it's small enough that it doesn't matter you know you're talking about oh, 100 yeah. maybe 200 bucks um right. and uh but i wanted to tell people uh if you call me and you say hey 
Money doesn't matter. I want the best mix possible. I am going to do my best to make sure that you are getting a really good mix without, you know, you feeling like we're just like raking money out, out of your pocket. Um, so we have a calculator that not only tells us the mixes, we've modified one that spits out a price. So I just put the mix, I just put the mix in and it tells me the price and I don't vary from that. Cause then I get a certain amount of money per species that I put in there. Right. right. And like Cytos Grama, it's going to be way more expensive. So if you want it, that's amazing. It's just more expensive, you know, or, um, like Heath Aster, more expensive than uh, smooth blue Aster, you know, those kinds of things end up being more expensive, but that way, you know, I'm not just like, well, they didn't said money wasn't a problem. So I'll just add a hundred extra dollars to the thing. Um, yeah, I, it, it's just hard recommending better mixes to people when the better mix is more expensive and they're your customer. Yeah, you know? and, but they, and they don't even have to outrageously be expensive, though. Like, people yeah. just think, like, oh, there's a lot of sp- that must equal more money. And it's like, you can actually have some very reasonable, high quality mixes because <laughs> you can f- balance those numbers a little bit where you can include things, but not at outrageous amounts. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. and have success. So that's, well, it goes back that's, to that's a know. mindset that even with NRCS employees, we have to try to get over the cost of resuscitating a uh, prairie planting later on, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. when you, yeah. you know, if you spend the money up front, you know, the whole buy once, cry once, you know, is, is a good thing we to had, keep in mind. Oh, I shouldn't say his name. Um, there was a gentleman who we did a planting for 13 years ago. And he did a great job and he picked the better mix and it planted well. And he did more than enough mowings in the first year, keeping those annual weeds down. And then he uh, went um, to the NRCS in year 10 and they're like, this is the best year 10 prairie. And guess what? He saved $28,000 on replanting that. Wow. That's, yeah, that's what about. Yeah, that's a story you need yeah. to share with people. You need, you need to have field days and take. <laughs> Is it still there? Is he yeah. still alive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, he's a younger guy. He's oh, not okay. like a... He's like a younger guy that viably can farm as much as he needs to. That's awesome. And he just decided to put it in prayer. He loves prayer. He's a great guy. But, man, well... Field day. We yeah. kind of heard earlier, if you could change something, what you would change. Which is normally... Normally, I ask people. I don't know if normally you really ask, ask And I'll, 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 I'll rephrase it. If you could snap your fingers and change something... What would it be? Just generally? Sure. Usually people answer conservation, but my goodness, <laughs> if, if you said I wish coffee was uh, was less expensive, you could say that. I don't care. I could snap my fingers and change one thing. Wow. That's a really big question. Um, I guess I... If I could snap my fingers, one thing would change be for everyone to inherently care about the next person. Man. Because mm. that really Covers is everything. what it boils down to. <laughs> wow. Yep. That is the most succinct nuts and bolts answer I've ever heard. I've heard a lot of really good ones, but that, that, was, that was solid. Uh, some honorable mentions. Uh, uh, Angela Fanning said she wished everyone for everyone had to have a garden mm, like uh, mandate because then they end up getting connected to it. People yes. enjoy it. Yes. Uh, there, uh, Tabitha said, wished everyone in uh, prairie region 
uh, could experience a full-blown huge prairie and like walk in it and see how glorious they are. Tabitha, she's a sweetheart. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> someone else said a really good one recently. Uh, Jack Benson, the people would quit lying. <laughs> yeah. Hey. yeah. That yeah. was a good one. Yep. He's not wrong there. Ooh, that would have upset some industries. <laughs> yeah. Some industries that are close to home. Oh, yeah. they're in denial. They don't even know. Yeah, maybe they're not lying. They're just in well, full-blown denial. You know, what, what Sarah said there just it kind of goes back to everything we touched. You know, it does. Yeah. yeah. If you, you're, you're not concerned about the numbers. You're concerned about, you know, what's doing the right thing and doing it for the sake of it being the right thing. And that in every, I mean, that covers every facet. Yes, man. Far beyond just conservation and prairie. <laughs> this is, now this is a little biased because a bunch of the most recent interviews I did was at you and I by myself. And I did, I think five in one day, like just sat down and crazy. Those were great. Them. Those were great interviews. I just feel a little bit sad for Nick having to, you know, do all that by himself. Dude, my I was, throat was like drying up. My legs are cramping. It, I was in the was combine all day. All day it was hard. Oh. Ew, yeah, it was so tough. It was so tough. <laughs> Sounds awful. Yeah, I was just talking what I love to do all day. Um, no, actually, the only hard part was driving back in the evening after you, like, just sat and listened to this conversation. You're just dead tired. <laughs> anyway, this was a really fun interview. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for did a great uh, job. No, I really it. enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. So, everyone, you know how it is. You know how it changes. Conservation happens one mind at a time.